Hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast. Hi everyone, today on the History with Jackson podcast we we are talking to co-author of The Bright Ages, David M. Perry. We've got an absolutely fantastic podcast topic lined up for you guys today and this is a truly tremendous book which I think you guys are enjoy going to enjoy learning about and listening to David talk to us and teachers about the various topics within this book. So David how are you doing? I'm great thank you so much for having me and I'm David Perry author of Bright Ages a journalist and historian and just thrilled to be here. No I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast David. Uh, firstly I just want to introduce the book to everyone it is the Bright Ages, a new history of medieval Europe. So guys, in case you haven't seen this all over Twitter, it is an absolutely fantastic book. You know, I think it's very well written. It's very easy to read. And it's really changed my perspective on some of the topics of, of medieval Europe and looked at them from a different, different light. So firstly, firstly, David, why, uh, why did you and your co-author, Matthew, decide to, to write this book? And how did you decide upon the title, The Bright Ages? Yeah, so there's, there's a story you've been telling. And, and like the best stories, this one, I just want to assure everyone happens to be true. Um, Matthew, so Matt, Matt and I had known each other since, you know, over well over a decade as, as fellow historians. We enjoyed um, we saw each other at conferences. We we had meals together. We argued about sports. We we um, I know this is in the UK. We we're baseball fans, and he's a Yankees fan, and I'm a Red Sox fan. So um, it's a fairly intense sports rivalry. Um, we but we we had a very good friendship friendship um, um, going, and both doing some some public writing, and we had talked loosely about collaborating with each other. We wrote an op ed together. That was a really it was a seamless writing process. The actual mechanics of putting sentences down and enjoying working together was very easy. Um, and that was great. But then what happened was Matt actually went to London and went to the British Museum, which in, um, I guess it would have been uh, late 2018, early 2019, had a, an exhibit, excuse me, the British Library. I always say the wrong thing. It's the British Library. Um, they had an exhibit on the treasures of Anglo-Saxon England. And it was this outstanding exhibition on, um, on manuscripts, not just from uh, the UK, but from all over Europe, um, but that were from this period in early England. And it was filled with gold and color and light and, and, and sort of you know the ways in which this early period in England was connected to the bigger world. And it was an outstanding exhibit. And then Matt, uh, as he tells it, went into the gift shop. And this is how you know, museums and libraries work is they have an exhibit, then they try to sell you things. And in the gift shop, of course, the library, they had books and they had plenty of books on aspects of the Middle Ages, many of which were aimed at public audiences and are quite good. Matt and I always like to say that we're working in a community of scholars doing lots of work. But the general histories of medieval Europe were, were pretty bad. Um, either they were old, decades sometimes out of date. I mean, there's a book from the 60s by Norman Cantor. It's, it's a problematic book in some ways, but he at least was a good scholar. But We've just learned a lot from the since the 60s, as you might expect, and it's still a very well-selling book. It's actually our same publisher, so I, maybe I shouldn't badmouth it too much, but it's you know it's just it's just out of date. Um, but a lot of the books are actually very bad. That the, the whole Middle Ages are you know are just sort of battles and men hitting each other with sticks and and um, you know it, and 
and and so it's just not the period that we recognized. Anyway, so Matt, but as he tells it, he pulled out his phone and he texted me from sort of late afternoon in London and said, David, I'm at this exhibit. All these books are terrible. We should write one. And I remember in my or in the morning receiving this text and responding more or less right away because we're both online constantly and saying that's right and we should call it the Bright Ages. Uh, and so at that moment we were launched. Now that's the story. Why the Bright Ages? We wanted from the jump, from the very first moment you you see the book or know that it exists for people to understand that we're trying to do something different. We're not just trying to tell a more nuanced story about medieval European history, although we are. We're not just trying to tell uh, an engaging and well-written story, although, although we are and we hope we do. We're trying to go right at this myth of the Dark Ages, this myth that has been around in some ways since the late 14th century. You know, 600, 700 years is a long time for a myth to last and say, we're, we're not gonna accept it. We're not gonna nuance it. We're not gonna just take the Dark Ages concept and shrink it down. We're going to flip it. We're gonna go at it from an entirely different direction and not say that the Middle Ages were bright and shiny and happy, but that they were knowable. Brightness in the sense of illuminated. Um, fire is bright, gold is bright, um, that we can, but that we can see the Bright Ages and understand it. And I can, I can feel that come across in, in your writing. <laughs> I can. I can see that just come through on every single page where it's not the idea of the dark ages. It is the bright ages. And you bring that color from the medieval period in so nicely uh, to the extent that it has changed my perspective on, on the era. But, you know, what, how does, you've touched on the idea of, you know, illumination. Uh, let's, I would like to go into that a little bit deeper yeah. and see, you know, what, what, what is the difference between, the bright ages and and this myth this traditional view of the dark ages so you have to sort of know the history of the dark ages a little bit it starts with this idea of kind of barbarism and savagery and nobody nobody who can read and the people who can read are all fanatical monks who are not interested in actually learning things and 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 that that myth still is out there it's 100% still out there, but at least we've pushed back on that a little bit. Um, but there's still kind of, so, so there's two dark ages. There's the dark age of barbarism and savagery and that life was brutal and short, or there's a book called A World Lit Only by Fire by a pretty good biographer of Winston Churchill who decided to write this terrible book on the Middle Ages that sold hundreds of thousands, I think, of copies. So it's, it's influential, right? The savage, the savage medieval world. And it's not that the medieval world didn't have savagery, it's just, I. I would, I would encourage you to look at, let's say, Ukraine and tell me that the medieval world was more savage than things that are happening today, or to look at the Thucydides and the wars of ancient Greece and tell me that, you know, that the slaughter of, you know, uh, the slaughter of all the men of a city is a, is a less savage world than the world of the Middle Ages. History is savage. Um, so, but one of the ways in which we've pushed back the Dark Ages, and we, I mean, professional historians, is to try to shift it from um, savagery to unknowability, that there are periods in which we just don't have a lot of sources, we don't really know what's going on, and then it shrinks even further to say, well, we're not really talking about the whole European Middle Ages, let's say 450 to 1450, we're really just talking about a couple centuries in the early part, and maybe only in a few places, like England, uh, where we really don't have sources. And there are periods in which there are more sources and periods in which there are less sources. 
But at all times, the past is knowable. There are things we can know about it. There are things we can learn about it. There are ways we can, there are new sources. There's new ways we can collaborate across disciplines. So using science, using um, archaeology, and, and also scientists talking to people who read texts, who know, you know, who know Latin. Um, but collaborations and just new, new forms of understanding of old material as well that we can, we can read with a different set of knowledge bases. So that's really... You know, we want to push back at the notion that the Middle Ages are somehow terminally backwards and benighted and more savage than other periods um, without saying, without trying to recuperate it and say, no, everything was great. It was heroic and perfect because that's also a problematic narrative that also exists out there. Um, but also just to, to really point out that these were humans. They were capable of all the things humans are capable of, good and bad, and that we can see that humanity in the sources that are left to us. Sometimes more so, sometimes less so. Sometimes you have to read a source kind of sideways in order to get into, um, to answer questions that they weren't, that the authors weren't interested in answering. Both Matt and I have done a lot of work with the sources around the lives of saints and those sources show up in our book because they often have everyday life or models of everyday life that show up in trying to illuminate how a particular figure was a saint. Um, and so those sources come down to us, but you can't just read them simply, you have to read them um, with complexity. And again, we try to make that clear. Um, so that's that's really the approach from the, from the start, from the very first page is to say, it was knowable, we can see it. They were humans who lived in color. And once we understand that as our baseline, we can start to tell a better story. And I, I really like the fact that you're pushing against that notion. You're, you're taking that role of a historian as addressing misconceptions through working with with different disciplines which is something that we as historians have have not done very well in the past past few years and it's it's really exciting to see that you're going into that that method to break down history and bring this history and make it more accessible for everyone you touch on the the age of barbarism uh and that kind of brings upon this dark ages but at the start of your book we look at we look at rome and we start with yeah. Rome. Uh, so why, why is Rome so important uh, to this understanding of the Bright Ages? So the story, the, the whole notion of the Middle Ages, which is found, developed you know, as a middle period between one thing and another, right? It's the only time period in some ways that is defined as not being one thing or another, right? That's between. Um, we don't really have another moment that, we, that, that, that fits that way in kind of our... our big periods of, of history. Um, the people who really kicked off this narrative of the Dark Ages in this middle period of darkness um, were in the Renaissance and they were talking about the Roman Empire and, and lamenting the fall of the Roman Empire. And um, so again, we have to address that from the start and we have to talk about ways in which to rethink this fifth century period. And, and we go about it from a couple of different ways. First of all, we start with the story of Gala Placidia. Um, and her mausoleum, it's actually not her mausoleum, the small chapel in Ravenna that is known as her mausoleum. And, and I have to tell you that, I mean, I've done a lot of reading about it, both before and while writing this book. Um, it does seem like it was not a mausoleum. It was built as a reliquary house. Maybe she intended to bury her son there, but I don't, I don't personally think so. It's, it's a little fuzzy, but we remember it as a mausoleum. And I only go into this because I think the ways in which we remember, the ways in which we name things obviously is really important. So this beautiful small chapel with a blue sky and flowers and stars and a very, a very human looking Christ 
Um, and then the image of possibly St. Lawrence being burned on the grill, there's some debate about it. But again, it's just this, everyone should go to Ravenna and you can go, we talk about it as well, you can go and see the mosaics of Justinian and Theodora and you can go see the big tower of Theodoric and it's a, it's a great, there's a really good gelato shop I like there. Um, but that mausoleum, that, that space in the mausoleum, um, I'll never forget going into it. And I, I hope that in our, in our writing, we at least conveyed some of what it's like to go into this mystical space, absolutely Christian, absolutely pointing forwards in terms of the way that religion is going to develop in um, Italy, but 100% based on classical ideas of, of architecture and how you build and design sacred space. So it's this hybrid space that really matters. But also Gala Placidia is a woman. And we don't want to tell the story um, just of men. As I like to say, our best guess is 50% of all people during the Middle Ages were women. So you got, you, you got to talk about them. But also she was there. She was in Rome in 410 in the sack of Rome, which often is where people start their story, but not us. She was um, involved in politics, often quite bloody politics leading up to that. She was taken as kind of a prisoner of war and then a diplomatic marriage to the to the Goths and taken to Spain. Her husband died. She, she got back to... Um, Rome, she married the emperor, she had a kid, she became the regent. And in this mid fifth century, this period in which allegedly Rome has fallen, she's building churches and writing letters, writing letters to the emperor in, in Constantinople saying, hey, you guys are doing Christianity wrong. The Pope and I are gonna tell you how to do it right. So it would have been a big surprise to her to hear that the Roman empire had fallen. And so what I'm hoping we can do is not pretend that there wasn't change, but to understand two things. One, that this change is contingent and in any given moment, humans make choices, constrained choices, but that things could turn out in different sorts of ways, that these things are not inevitable, inevitable sort of historical forces moving time forward, but humans making choices. And, and two, that we don't, the, the ways we tell the story matter. So if I say the fall of Rome or the dark ages, I'm immediately drawn into this black hole, the center of this gravity pit of 700 years of a particular kind of storytelling. And I don't want to be in that, that gravity. I want to escape it. So instead I can say there was decline in Roman authority in the far Northwestern Europe. I can say that, you know, soldiers left, the legions left England. Um, and although no one knew they weren't going to come back at the time, they in fact did not come back. And that's a change. We can look at evidence of a decrease in long distance trade or populations in cities. And I can say there's less trade in smaller cities without saying the fall of the Roman empire, right? One thing is a true thing that I can just say. And the other thing is, is creating a narrative that places me in a particular tradition of narratives. And those are the kinds of choices I want us. And when I say us, I really mean us as historians, us as teachers, but also us as readers to be aware of. And it's it's an interesting way of getting away from that narrative that traditional narrative which has been stuck in schools for yeah. for centuries stuck in the way we watch television the the production of this era within uh within the media and i i really like the idea because you did bring uh, ravenna into the book so beautifully <laughs> but Thank i'd you. really like the idea of how you brought in the the ideas of early globalization, the periphery into the narrative, because it's not something that we've traditionally look at within this era. We tend, like you said, we fall into this gravity trap, the center looking at Rome and not looking elsewhere. And, yeah. and by looking at trade in the Northwest, 
forces leaving England were starting to look at that periphery. So why did you think it was important to kind of bring in these ideas? At all times during the, so we, we wanted to tell a history of Europe, um, you know, not to try to say we were telling, you know, a global Middle Ages or just the Middle Ages, it's the European Middle Ages. Um, but at all times, Europe is part of a bigger world. And sometimes it's, you know, again, sometimes there's more flow of ideas and peoples and things, and sometimes there's lesser to different places and different times. But there's always contact, and sometimes the contact is swift or slow. But, you know, just the, you know, we, we talk about this a lot in our early England chapter, um, because even the people who try to diminish the Dark Ages still often say, well, maybe there was a couple hundred years in early England, but where they have bishops arriving from Africa. And not only do bishops arrive from Africa, but nobody seems particularly surprised that they're African. They're not like, well, what's Africa? I've never heard of that. Like, oh, this is a bishop from Africa. That makes sense. They have garnets from India, right? They have lapis lazuli from, Af from Central Asia, from, you know, I don't know if it came from, from the, what we call Afghanistan today, but certainly from Central Asia, right? These things are moving. So sometimes things move and sometimes people move. And sometimes it takes many generations for something to happen. But there is no point in which Europe is cut off from the world, is not part of the world, is not thinking about the world, and in which a lot of the world is thinking about Europe too. And I've, I've seen that throughout. And it's really nice to see these connections, partic uh, particularly the inclusion of African history within this global or this more Eurocentric narrative of the era, because it's not it's not something that we traditionally make that connection with. Well, yeah, and we we kind of deliberately tried to pull the center of gravity a little bit south. Um, a lot of the history of of sort of the European Middle Ages is really French, English, and German. Uh, it was invented. The, I, sort of this, this discipline was invented in 19th century universities in Germany, France, and England as kind of part of the, the building of nation state historical narratives. Uh, and that's a, that's a very complicated sentence I just said with a whole other podcast kind of layered, layered behind it. And, um, but, but it's there, right? So we, we really wanted to pull south. And, and part of it is something like the Mediterranean, including Italy and Spain and Southern France, um, and parts of the Eastern Mediterranean as well. They, they have more cities in times that other places don't have cities, but they're part of Europe. So if we try to write, they have, you know, so if we try to write these other places out because they're different than kind of the model, I would say that the problem is the model, not these other places. And I, I really like that idea that the, the problem is the model uh, because right. certainly, certainly here and uh, being a teacher in England, I do kind of see these narratives where we, we focus exclusively on that Anglo-Franco relationship uh, without really bringing anything else in until a pope pops up and declares a religious <laughs> war. It's a difficult thing to try and navigate as historians. Uh, but part well, of that... Well, model, models are hard, right? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, and I know you have no, no, a lot of, of other questions, but like <laughs> models are hard. Right? So I just think about the ones... That feudalism is is one is is the F word for for medievalists, and and we talk about that in the book. But like, there's never a moment in which there is an, a feudal system that works in the way that I I was taught in in middle school, um, with you know a pyramid with the king at the top and knights at the bottom, and sort of a, a you know king, duke, counts, barons, knights in this this structure. It, it never existed. There are moments in which ideas like that exist in the Middle Ages and medieval people are thinking about power in interesting ways, 
but that system never exists. But, you know, we get taught it when we're 12 because it's easy. Um, and if we're a teacher and we're teaching 12 year olds, trying to teach history to 12 year olds, um, you know, that's, that's hard. Um, just like when we get taught physics, we get taught, you know, models of the molecule that are two dimensional concentric circles rather than complex 3D shapes spinning in space. And, and I understand that, but also we're, we're not telling the truth. Um, and that too is part of the work of the Bright Ages is that we're trying to say, you can do a thousand years in 300 pages and tell a different kind of story. And it will be a story that makes choices that leaves things out. I mean, we cannot do a thousand years in 300 yeah. pages. You can't do a thousand, you can't do a thousand years in 30,000 pages. Um, all, all of these things are choices, but you know, it was, we, we wanted to do it with kind of brevity and speed and, and hopefully an openness of the language that invites lots of different kinds of readers in um, to show that it's possible. Uh, to show that you, you can, I don't know about 12 year olds, but I know a lot of people who have given this book to their, their 14 and 15 year olds who are interested in history and had them read it, as well as their 90 and 95 year old parents and had them read it. And so, so that's really, I mean, that's part of the work and on just a, like a, a prose level, a sentence level of trying to, to, to create different models for even when you're trying to talk pretty quickly and at a, at a, at a high overview that it's, it's possible. Yeah, and I, I definitely, it's, it's 100% possible. Uh, like you know challenges these conceptions that are created uh, at school level like you said I've been teaching that same feudal system and it's infuriating as a teacher to know <laughs> that it doesn't work like that but still you have to do that because that's the simplest way to explain it and but this just goes a long way to challenge misconceptions you know or conceptions that start at uni because you've read something in a certain way like you said that was written in the 1960s but a, yeah, central, yeah. a central theme that I see throughout it, and it's an area that I'm quite interested in, is um, the religious history. You know, religion is this guiding force throughout the medieval period, and, and you bring that throughout the pages of your book. But why is religion so important? Why do these popes become these guiding forces of the era? Yeah. You know, both... Both Matt and I, in our scholarship, do a lot of religious history. And we try to do religious history in the sense that we try to understand the, the overlapping and often conflicting experiences of what it meant to be religious within our time periods. Um, so, um, and, and I will say that my co-author is an intellectual historian and, and knows a lot more about what's happening at sort of the, the very high level. I'm an urban historian and I really got interested in Venetians who often are kind of the villains of history, um, stealing relics, and, and they are stealing relics, as did many people did, but, but I was interested in the ways in which they wrote about these various incidents and adventures and, and thefts and, and, and stories, thefts that didn't happen, that they, they lied about having done, and because I wanted to understand it within their own frame. Um, it is a pathway into understanding how people view the world, but it's also another place to take apart big narratives to, to, you know, to not use the word Catholic pre-Reformation because it, it, it doesn't mean the same things. Um, to, to say, when, to understand that, that Christianity is always plural, not just that there are multiple sort of big forms of Christianities in the, in the East and the West, but that in any, any place you, you look, you'll find radically different ideas of what it meant to be Christian. And the same is true with Judaism and the same is true as with Islam, all of which are medieval European religions. Um, 
so yeah, so so this is really um, a major entry point for both of us as scholars into how to understand the medieval European world, and as a, as a major way to understand the modern world too, but not in a not in a you know I, I can't I've had so many students who are like oh they were they were really religious back then they must have they must have not had a lot of sex or something and and that's just not true they in fact had a lot of sex and they liked it and they wrote really dirty books about it and they told really dirty stories about bishops seducing the lord's wives and you know but they also thought other things too at the same time because that takes me back to the idea that they were human and uh, i love those kind of stories that you insert as well because it yeah. like you said it does make the story more human it does it's those little interesting snips of history which which draw people in, which are engaging and, and tell you that, you know, like you said, these, me these medieval people were, were people, they were human. And one, one idea that I, I quite like is looking at the horrors of the church, yeah. the, the violence of the church. Uh, you know, how does this, this peaceful professing, uh, a religion that professes to be peaceful deliver so much violence and horror on upon the era yeah it's a very good question and it's a place that places you as a historian in a complicated position because on the one hand there is a whole contemporary right-wing movement um so you know not not just sort of casually right-wing but kind of far far right um movement that would like to say the crusades are great and the inquisition was great and if it wasn't great, it was at least better than, you know, what the Muslims are doing or, you know, and, and, but on the other hand, there's an, there's a, there's a, there's an idea that, you know, religion is the source of all evil in the world and is just, you know, a smokescreen for violence. Um, and so it places you in a, a complicated position. And we didn't want to erase the violence or make it seem like medieval Christians were particularly more violent than anyone else. I will say that from the first moment in Christian history, from when um, state violence was possible, Christian rulers execute, used, used state violence and linked it to their religion, sometimes more, sometimes less. There definitely is a moment around the First Crusade in which something exceptional and unusual happens. And we've been trying to figure out what that was and how um, for a very long time with, with, I think, a lot of success, a lot of really very good readings of our sources and, and try, trying to make sense trying to make sense of, of these things that happened and what was new and what was, was old there. And if you go to a conference of crusades historians, you will see in any given year, you know, 50% of them are on this, often seem to be on this question um, of, of why did this crusade happen and why was it, why did it turn out this, this way in the first crusade? Um, but it is, you know, it is, it is certainly true that religion provides, religion of all sorts can provide a narrative for justifying, um, for justifying, defining people as an other, sometimes in in religious terms, on doctrinal terms, often in either racial or pre-racial terms. There's there's a, a lot of scholarship now around rate what they what they're calling race making in medieval Europe, which is say ways of defining difference that at least for me, and, and there are better people who can talk about this, but for me, in hindsight, it's clear that it's leading towards ideas of race, even if it's still not formed all the way in, in various periods, but, but race making and around difference. Um, and sometimes as with, with Jews, uh, I, I'm Jewish, I guess I'll just say that, uh, with, with medieval Jews and modern Jews that simultaneously doctrinal and racial or, or I mean, the, the othering of Jews is a particular 
a particular problem um, that, that works in, in specific ways. Um, so religion provides a tool for that. It, it also provides a tool for making different choices. And I mean, there's lots of places in the book we could talk about that. I, I like the example of um, King Louis IX, um, and, and people can look at this on the, in the BBC History Today magazine, um, where he wrote about that. Um, so I think that's what it's called. And um, you know, at the same time as he's building Saint-Chapelle, which is one of the most beautiful places on the planet, um, and if then people should go to Paris and go to Saint-Chapelle, and the entire walls are made of colored glass. It's, it's just extraordinary. He was having Jewish law books burned um, in the, the Place de Grève, just, just you, know, you, you might have been able to see it from the steps of Saint-Chapelle if you, if you look the right way. Um, and that both of these are part of the story of medieval religion. Or another one when, um, you know, there's the story of kind of medieval Christians were intolerant and savage and banned books. And then we get the Renaissance and we get science and that's good. Um, and it, it is true that medieval people banned books, but there's a, the story we like to tell is in Paris in the 13th century, they, they banned, I think in the 13th century, they banned teaching Aristotle complicated reasons why, but it, you know, it's often, that ban of Aristotle is often held up as a sign of the intolerance of medieval religion, medieval Christianity, and it was. But at the same time, down the road, Toulouse, another French city, their university says, hey, we're still teaching Aristotle, leave Paris, come here. And that also is part of the story of medieval religion, that these are both equally part of the story of medieval religion. One place banning books, the other place using banning books to advertise their own services. And it's 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 great because we see France is almost this this microcosm of the different cultures and opinions uh, within Christianities, uh, and it's it's a really great case study on how France can represent both sides uh, of the argument within Christianity or Christianities. Mm-hmm. And you also talk about oh, sorry, no no go on. Uh, you also talk about judaism like you've just you've mentioned i find it really quite interesting that you bring judaism and islam into the medieval story of the bright ages um why did you feel it was i know i know you're you're jewish but why did you think it was important to bring both of these into the story the the most simplest answer is because they were there because they're part of the story it's the same reason that we people ask us you know why we include so many women it's because 50% of the people were women. 50% were not Jewish, but they, they were Jews throughout the history of medieval Europe, Europe in different kinds of, of positions, sometimes more fraught, often quite peaceful. Um, but, but even when peaceful, sort of constrained in, in different sorts of ways, there is no paradise of 20th century, 21st century sort of multiculturalism. We can, and again, does that exist in the modern world? That's a different podcast. But, um, you know, there, there is no, medieval people are not thinking about difference in in modern ways even at our best selves like you know our best ideas they have different ideas but there are jews there the whole time and the same thing with with um islam you know, we, we have a chapter on the origins of islam which is one of the most extraordinary stories in world history and it's also a story that a lot of people have written about including in popular books aimed at english language audiences that are very accessible. There's lots of good stories on, on early Islam um, that, that have been told and are being told. So what we're trying to do in our chapter is, is two different things. One, we spend a lot of the book trying to undermine this narrative of an eternal clash of civilizations between, as, as it's been called, Islam and the West, which is both very fraught terms. 
but we we want to say that's not true and um and talk about you know the contested but co co coexistence within the early city of jerusalem after the conquest when a when a caliph prays outside um the, the holy sepulcher um with the with the patriarch kind of overseeing the process um again it doesn't mean that everyone is happy and living and you know holding hands and singing you know singing kumbaya together but there but there is but it does they're also not killing each other all the time and so it's worth doing that um, but also to say that Islam is a medieval European religion. There is no point after about 700 in which there aren't Muslims who live in Europe, who are born in Europe, who think of themselves, if not as European, at least as Iberian or as Sicilian or, you know, as, as, as multi-generational inhabitants of a place that we would recognize as Europe. There's just no story of medieval Europe without having Muslims living there as, you know, just as much as anyone else is living there. So you have to tell that story. And it's just, it is a fascinating story. In that chapter, I will implore anyone to go and read it because it, it, it really builds a really nice picture of Europe within the age with the idea of Islam built into it. It's just, it's a really great story to go and read and understand the period a little bit more. And there seems to be a lot of, like you said, with coexistence, but a transfer of, of knowledge. Um, and a relationship which coexists in the context of knowledge quite peacefully. Um, so would you say the Bright Ages is a an era of peaceful knowledge transfer? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know if I want to go on peaceful, but there is a lot of knowledge transfer. So first of all, there, there's a couple of different things happening that, that are important. One goes back to what we talked about in the beginning of this idea of Europe as existing in kind of a, a splendid isolation from which it will beat the Black Death build big ships and conquer the world and sort of in this, the simplest, that's just not true. They are part of the world or at least the hemisphere the whole time. They're part of the hemisphere the whole time. Um, and, they, and they know it and they understand that. Um, there is a lot of transfer of knowledge and, and it's, it's complicated, you know, like we, we, open our, we open our chapter on Iberia with a monk from Cluny. Cluny is the, the great intellectual think tank of, of the period. It's, it's sort of the it founds franchises of monasteries all over Europe. It drives reform. It gets to pick the Pope eventually. It's a really big deal. And, and a guy from Cluny goes to Toledo and his mission is to, to translate the Quran. I'll get the Quran translator. He doesn't know Arabic, but get it translated into Latin, um, which sounds like a great moment of multicultural sharing, right? Translate the Holy Book. He's, and it does have, it is a point of, of multicultural contact that really matters. At the same time, he's doing it so that he can understand Islam more, he and his, his brethren, so that they can refute it and say why it's wrong and, and, and not, you know, not a true new revelation. So they're not, they're not working in a modern context of let's build harmony across faiths. They're building a context of we need to understand this faith so we can beat it. But at the same time, they do come to understand the other faith, and it does have an impact on them. We have a chapter that focuses around um, the great thinker. It's actually his birthday today. Um, Moses Maimonides. It, it's uh, March 30th. And as I understand, I just saw it on the internet earlier this morning, it, it, this is his birthday. So happy birthday to the, the great Maimonides. Um, for a lot, Maimonides was born in Iberia, so medieval European Jew. He spends a lot of his life in North Africa, including Cairo, being the, the, the head of the Jewish quarter in Cairo, but also the doctor to the, the great Sultan Saladin. Um, so really, and, and then writing some of the most important works of philosophy of all time. 
Um, his brother dies trying to trade from the East Coast of Africa to the Indian Ocean. So there's yet another connection and we have these amazing sources that tell us about them. But really the thing about that chapter is that we have people in Iran who are, com who are commenting on Aristotle. So there's the classical world and also then innovating on based on those commentaries. And that knowledge moves from Iran to Egypt, from Egypt to Iberia, from Iberia to France and Italy, back to Iberia, back across North Africa. And it's not like sending email, it's not overnight, but it is within one or two generations of these individuals doing this kind of thinking about this Greek text and then what the translations of the Greek text and what it means, what it means for, for believers in these different religions in their own days. So say Thomas Aquinas, what does Aris, how does Aristotle help? Maimonides dealing with um, the death of his brother and the presence of evil in the world, writes this book, The Guide for the Perplexed, in terms of under explaining what God is and what God isn't. Very abstract stuff, not like first day, you know, st new student, let's sit down and read Maimonides stuff. Um, but you can read it and you can think about it again as, as humans trying to understand their world, but also just watch the information flow, not just people's moving, but ideas about Aristotle moving thousands of miles um, across the world in the 11th, 12th, 13th century. And again, it, you see those international connections and it's, it's even great to see the, the transfer of knowledge and how it's, how it's affecting these different, these different areas. Um, and one area that you talk about, talk about in your book, and I, I find particularly interesting, is this introduction of China and China's interaction with the West or the world of Islam. How does that, how does that come about? Well, again, that's a, a big topic that, that there are other people writing very good books about. So I don't, I want to be very clear that I'm not an expert in medieval China and that there are experts in medieval China and that you should seek them out. And, and we did, and we read, we read them. Um, you know, I mean, and, and the story of China and Islam, you know, that's in some ways the story of the Silk Road, add in Buddhism, and, and you have the story of the Silk Road. Medieval Europe is on the edge of the Silk Road the whole time. Silk moves, ideas move, people move um, the whole time. It does intensify, though, in the era of the Mongolian Empire um, for a lot of reasons, that the ways in which the Mongolian Empire uh, across Central Asia and into China and into Western Asia and Southwestern Asia, um, create kind of some shared systems. They make it a little easier to travel. They make it very profitable to travel. They make it politically and necessary to make contacts across. So we, we look at these friars moving out of the West and heading into, um, into Central Asia and, and sort of Northeast Asia um, to, to meet with the great Khan Monge. Um, sending him a letter from the Pope saying, you must convert or you'll go to hell and the Pope, the, you know, the Mongol Khan's like, well, you must convert or I'll come burn your city down. And, you know, nothing happens. Um, there's also lots of hopes of, of, of alliances and collaboration and such things. But the, the narrative, you know, in every chapter, we're trying to undo a narrative. And the narrative here is that the West had no contact with the East. And these are, again, problematic terms until the Crusades. And then when the Mongols come, they finally discover, you know, discover China and they make contact across these great distances. And we would like instead to say that it's an intensification. When these Franciscan friars show up at the court of the Khan, the, the, no one is saying, who are these people? I've never heard of Christians before. Instead, they're saying, oh, 
They're a slightly different kind of Christian than the 50 other Christians that are all around us. Let's get one of them who speaks Hungarian to do the translation so that we can make it right. They have someone at their court who speaks Hungarian, um, ready, ready to go. Um, that there are these connections already pre-exist and sometimes they intensify and change in meaning and new factors appear, um, but that it's not, it sort of doesn't, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. Um, Marco Polo doesn't come out of nowhere. He comes out of a long tradition of Venetians. I'm an expert in Venice in particular, traveling into the Eastern Mediterranean, accessing trade goods from as far east as they can go, and probably traveling pretty far inland um, pretty early on. Just does a source survive? Does a story survive that, that gets us there um, before, you know, before a particular period? That might not happen. But Venetians are going to the Eastern Mediterranean, and at least some of them aren't stopping. Uh, when if they if they can find a safe way through, and that's 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 absolutely fascinating that they they are trying to make that journey there, and they are making that journey. And I really like that phrase, intensification. Uh, I think yeah. it's the the best descriptor of of that relationship. We, we don't we don't want to be accused of saying nothing ever changes because things change all the time, um, and we don't want to say it because it's not true. Accusations notwithstanding, we we don't want to say it because it's not true. Um, we just want to to rewrite some of the some of the equally not true narratives uh, of of isolation and lack of contact, um, which are also just not true. And it's it's interesting you also bring the Venetians into it because the Venetians are are partially responsible for one of the most uh, disastrous or important events in this <laughs> is medieval period. Uh, at 1204, with the fall of Constantinople, uh, the fall of New Europe, uh, or not New Europe, New Rome, the fall of New, New Rome. Rome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, how is this a particularly important uh, event in this period? And is it a problematic term to say that it is the fall of New Rome equally as the fall I of Rome mean, is problematic? I, I would, I would say so. So you've asked me a good question. I have to tell you that in every time we talk about the Fourth Crusade, I made Matt write the first draft. And the reason I made Matt write the first draft is that my first book is entirely on the First Crusade. All, I mean, the Fourth Crusade, all of my, the fourth one, all of my scholarly articles are about Venice, um, often about and crusading. And I have spent a really large part of my adult life thinking about this question. Um, so it's a place where summary is, is a challenge for me. Um, in 1204, Right, a group of French crusaders and Venetian crusaders pretty accidentally end up conquering the city of Constantinople. And having done so, they say, hey, this is the will of God. Now I've got a Latin empire. We're gonna reconnect with Rome. The Pope says, hey, that's great. Um, and then it all falls apart in some ways within a year. Although a version of they, they, the, the new dynasty that comes from the Counts of Flanders and Constantinople does hang on to the city until the 1260s. So that's, that's one, one story. If it's the fall of, of New Rome, it is then immediately restored by a guy who, you know, who takes the name Constantine and not by accident. Um, and there's another Paleologoi, this last dynasty that lasts from 1260 to 1453. So that's 200 years. There is a story that you know Byzantium would have held off the Ottomans if not for the Fourth Crusade. I actually think that story is nonsense in part because they had no boats. Like the reason that the Fourth Crusade happens is that the Venetians had ships and the Greeks had no ships. Um, and that put them in a strategic, they, they were having problems anyway, but it's hard to know how things would have turned out had something else not happened, right? Um, there are lots of moments. In the restoration of Greek control of Constantinople, 
the Greeks ally with the city of Genoa that more or less provides them with a fleet. And Genoa does this because they want to undermine Venice. But both Genoa and Venice are part of Europe. And we can't pretend just because Genoa is a very different place than, I don't know, Glasgow or, you know, a Welsh castle or, you know, a, a city, I don't know, actually it's not that different than, I was going to say a city in Norway, but it's actually not that different than cities in Norway in important ways. You know, Genoa is an unusual and interesting place, but, you know, then Genoa and so Western Catholic Europe, although I'm using the word Catholic, is just as much a part of putting these Greeks back on the throne in Constantinople as anyone else. I think it's fair to say that there's 500 years of relative instability around Constantinople, but also 500 years is a long time to, to hold on before the, the wave of the Ottomans, the Ottomans come. There's a great British historian of the Crusades named Stephen Runciman, um, one of the most famous historians of the Crusades of all times. And he wrote this very important three volume series on the history of the Crusades. And I think about him a lot because he, he lived and fought through World War II. He had seen the horrors of World War II. And he writes about the Fourth Crusade and he calls it you know, the greatest disaster in all of human history. And I just think we have to reject that kind of narrative. I think we really have to say that it, it was a disaster for the people who, who lost the war. There was definitely multiple days of plundering in the ways that when cities are captured, it is a bad time to be a civilian and we don't wanna pretend it's not. There was a huge extraction of wealth and art out of Constantinople and sent to the West. Um, but of course, a lot of that art had been extracted from other places to bring to Constantinople. So it, it's, it's, a complicated, it's a complicated narrative. It is dramatic and it is unexpected. And it does then change the ways in which um, people like Pope Innocent III, this very important Pope in the early 13th century and his successors and, and rulers are talking about their project. It means that Venice starts claiming itself to be um, in some ways the Roman empire. What they really say is they claim to be the lords of one quarter and one half of one quarter of the Roman empire. So it's a, because they have a con they have contracts because they're merchants, right? So it does, it has enormous impact on how people talk and think about themselves. It has big geopolitical and economic implications. Um, but I also think it's not the greatest disaster ever to befall humans in all of history. And we have to, to walk a line between that. Uh, and you know, it's, it's such a fascinating period. And you, like, you talked about this, how it's, it's not one of the major disasters. Uh, I, I really enjoy how you challenge these narratives, these traditional narratives. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's a disaster if you're if you're if you're one of the three emperors named Alexius, one yeah. after another. Um, it's a twelve oh four is a very bad year for you. It's a very bad year. Um, and if you are a civilian in the city of Constantinople and your home is burned and your family members are killed and maybe um, you know and and maybe if you're a woman you're raped and maybe you know, maybe, or maybe a, a family member is right. Being in a conquered city is terrible. It's terrible. We shouldn't look away from that kind of horror. Um, but to hold it up as different than other moments of cities being ransacked and pillaged and other states falling, I think that becomes, that becomes, that, that's what we have to challenge. Yeah, you know, there's a guy named Nikitas, there's a guy named Nikitas Koniates. I told you I couldn't be short on this one. Yeah, that's um, all right. Who, 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 who was there. Um, he was an advisor to uh, the last of the Alexes in particular. He was there. He wrote very important history of the period. Um, and he has, this, he has this, this lament in which he talks about the, the, the conquerors putting a, a prostitute on the throne of the patriarchs and, and 
raping nuns and burning everything to the ground. And I don't know about the prostitute on the throne of the, the patriarchs, but, but certainly there, were, there was widespread torture and rape and pillage that, that did happen. But what's always been striking about me is that during that period, according to himself, Coniates was hiding. He was in hiding. So he didn't see anything. And when he leaves the city, he's in a big line of people leaving the city. And um, some Franks come up and they, they, they pull a, a girl out of the train and they're going to take her into a house and assault her. And some Venetians come up and say, hey, you can't do that. And they take her back and they, they, they drive the Franks away. So this is the, the eyewitness part of what Coniatus experiences is, is that nuanced story, right, of terrible violence and real threat and real destruction and personal fear, but also people making different kinds of choices and, and, and the worst thing not always happening at all times. So it is a, a messy, terrible, because all wars and all conquests are terrible, human story. And, and, and yet again, I, I really enjoyed how you brought that human side into it and he's a particularly fascinating uh particularly fascinating character and another he's 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 not in our book sadly but um he's in my other books (laughs) my other book's not as the other book i did not write in a way to try to be accessible to 15 to 95 years but 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 yeah some people might read it another particularly fascinating character uh attached this fourth crusade and he is my favorite pope uh it's innocent the third uh, you know yeah. how how important is is Innocent the Third because he seems to have such an, a large amount of influence on the bright ages. Sure, you know we we try to shy away often from the sort of the great men doing great things narrative of history, but there certainly are great men and women who do great things and who have as individuals real impacts on how history develops. And I would say that Innocent the Third is one of them. He's pretty young when he becomes a pope, which is different. He's the benefit. He doesn't come out of nowhere, right? He comes out, I mentioned Clooney a few minutes ago. He comes out of a century of, of reform, both sort of legalistic reform and intellectual reform and theological reform, redefining the role of the pope and also political reform. He's got the tools of the crusades. Um, he's taking power after crusades have already been wielded in various kinds of ways against enemies of the pope or against you know the, these earlier examples of what event later will become known as the Italian or the papal crusades. There are some earlier examples. He's got a lot, he's got a lot of tools that other popes didn't have, but he also seems to, you know, he's from an elite Italian family. He's got a legal background um, and he's got a very competent administration and he, and he has a set of ideas about what the pope should be and also where the world is in time, by which I mean, he, he does seem to be shaped by, and I, I, should have, I should drag Matt on somehow, he's really an expert in this, shaped by kind of apocalyptic theory of looking for where the, the end is coming and where he is living on that timeline. And so when something like the conquest of Constantinople happens in 1204, he sees it as a sign, oh, we're getting much closer to the end now. This is a big deal. The next thing that'll happen is, you know, with, with the Eastern Roman Empire's resources, now we'll take back Jerusalem and then we'll do this and we'll do that. And then here comes, you know, here comes the book of Revelation. And then a year later, that doesn't happen. And so then he has to rethink, well, what did I misread? How did I get it wrong? So he's, he has real power. He has administrative power. He has legal power. And he has ideas about who he is and, and what's the, where the world is that really comes together. And then he has enormous challenges. He has 
continued failures of crusades to the east. Um, you know, the Fourth Crusade is, I just think it's really important to emphasize that in, in April of 1204 and in the months that followed as news trickled west, the narrative was not, oh, this crusade, the disaster. The narrative was, this is the greatest crusade since the first one. We've taken Constantinople. We're going to reunify the churches. Everything's going to be great. It isn't what happened, but that's the story that they're telling in those first six months to a year. And we have sources, again, like it's knowable. They write letters. They, we have some of them. Um, we, we, we don't have a lot of them, but if you have six of them, you know, there are six identical letters by the by Pope Innocent that he sends out. And if you've got six of them, he probably sent out 60. Um, so like we can see this in the sources, but it goes badly. He's got heretics in the South of France. It goes badly. He's trying to figure out, you know, what, what it means to have a church in a way that didn't exist before, in which everyone is trained kind of the same way and practices and devotional beliefs are the same way. So he he pulls together the great and powerful of his world in this fourth ladder in council in 1214. And he 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 and again I say he, but I mean him and his 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 administration. It's like when you talk about any political leader, right? There's a whole team of people try to pass a set of canon laws to stabilize what what it means to be a Christian in that era. And it includes things like universal confession. And in the past, before that, so we're 12, if we take, which we shouldn't, but if we take the, the life of Jesus as zero, and we're in 1214, that's a lot of Christian history in which people did not confess their sins every year. And that means that the local, the local priests often have no idea what people believe. And often have no idea what's going on. And because to confess a sin, you have to understand what sin is. And to understand what sin is, you have to be educated in a church. You have to be educated. And, and so there, there's a whole infrastructure that, that builds up around it. So I, I think you can't understate the importance of Innocent III and the, the, you know, the world that he lived in um, on, on his impact on, on this period of history, uh, often in quite destructive ways of launching wars, both in Europe and outside of, um, uh, but certainly also pushing uh, intellectual and legal development that, that, that in their own ways are, are building universities and are, are, become, are, are creating places where people write books and learn things and create art and do all the other stuff that we claim to like at the same time as terrible violence in the South of France um, against, uh, in, in the, the Albigensian crusade and against uh, so-called theoretical heretics. And you know the Albigensian Crusade is is yeah. is, is horrible, uh, and it's it's a real moment in, in European history where the power of the church is 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 demonstrated. But it's also very hard. Well, or the the you know the power of of a church, the power of of one idea of what it means to wield power and 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 think about religion in that moment. Right? It's not. There are a lot of people who also understand themselves as Christian who are appalled at the violence and who say so at the time. And sometimes they say so, you know, in formal state chronicles, more they say so in, you know, poems written in Provençal in the language of the place that's being sacked, which I do not read, but, I, you know, I've read some translations or I've read them in Latin or I've read them in French. Um, but, you know, and if there's, again, if there's four poems talking about how terrible this is, you know, that were written down, think about how many were being recited orally that we don't, that we don't have, right? I mean, there's both, we can't decide that Simon de Montfort and his violence, you know, is the true face of medieval Christianity and the guy criticizing him 
is somehow doesn't count. They're both medieval Europeans. And if one strain is more dominant at one moment or has more power than a moment, we can assess that and we can talk about that. Yeah, and it's 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 uh, you know it's interesting to see the idea of churches and Christianities like you've touched yeah. on before play out within this region. Um, if, and if there's one thing that people who are interested in religious history, medieval religious history, take away from our conversation, that would be it. If I could, I mean, I yeah. I have fi- I have fifty things I'd rather, but if there's one, I'd like them to understand them as as Christianities. And just because someone says we are the church and we have the power and we are orthodox and we get to choose what's correct doesn't mean that we have to take that at face value and they're making an argument and i i like i particularly like that argument i like the idea of the bright ages and and looking at the influence uh, of certain different events and people and to look i want to look at one final event and that is the black death the Black Death, it, it leaves such a huge influence and mark on, on medieval Europe. Um, but how did, how did this affect these medieval people and what, and what was their reaction to it? Yeah, you know, that's a, it's definitely a chapter that we would have written differently in 2019 than we wrote in 2020. Um, I mean, I think, I think the first draft of that showed up in the summer of 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic, maybe the early fall. Um, but I think the summer, and uh, you know, we were we were able to be outside, but we still weren't really gathering, uh, at least in, in the U.S. And um, it's very different writing about a global pandemic when you're living in one. And uh, and you know, we talk about the writing of history; it happens in a, in its own context. The writing of history. Happens in context. Stephen Runciman writing after World War II. We're not, we're no, I'm no Sir Stephen Runciman. I want to be very clear about that. Um, I'm not claiming, but you know, I, the fact that we wrote this during a pandemic, I mean, just things like we couldn't go visit each other. We had to do everything remotely. We couldn't go to our libraries um, and, and check out books, uh, particularly in the early sex stage before they kind of figured out ways around that. Um, I think that the, the impact of the, of the, f- first few decades of the second plague pandemic in Europe. So you may have noticed I used very careful language there, right? The Black Death we're talking about in the 1340s, the arrival of this of bubonic plague in, in Italy. Um, new scholarship by Monica Green, we talked about this in the book, has really pushed our understanding of the spread of that back to the early 13th century in um, the mountains of Cent- the Tianxia Mountains of Central Asia. We find it in Baghdad in the 1250s. We can we find it, you know, so hundreds, over a hundred years before kind of we understood the origins of, the, of this pandemic, we're now finding it. Um, and part of that is not happy thought, but pandemics last for centuries, centuries, right? The second plague pandemic lasts for centuries. Um, so um, we're three years into the COVID-19 pandemic. I hope we make it not in centuries, but I don't think like, the sto- that story is not over. That's the, and, and there are more twists and turns in that story as there were in the story of the Black Death. You know, when 40% of the po- population dies, that's just unthinkable. Um, it's unthinkable. And the ways in which it affects the economy and state powers um, and in work, whether it's people making more money because of concentration of capitals or peasants trying to be forced into labor um, so that they can't ask, you know, when there's fewer peasants, they could ask for more wages. So the state passes laws that they can't ask for more wages. Then they rise up and try to kill people and then they get re- suppressed. I mean, there's, you know, it's not, 
there, there's generations of, of violence and chaos and reorganization of society that happens uh, as a result of this wave, this wave of death. One thing that I think is easier to teach now than it was 10 years ago or even three years ago is that medieval people weren't stupid. Um, they were understanding their world to the best as they could. They had ideas about contagion. They had ideas about bad air, about airborne viruses, right? The, or not viruses, but of airborne contagion. They had ideas about quarantine. They did not understand, you know, insects on rodents as a vector to transmit bloodborne pathogens. That is not a medieval sentence. But they they really did think very hard about their world and they tried to make sense of it in ways that 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 kind of worked for them that had reasonable theory behind it. They also panicked. They also went into extremes of religious activity and extremes of, extremes of secular activity. Um, you know that. But again, I think it's easier to see those extreme reactions, for me anyway, with a little more nuance and understanding, having watched the global reaction to COVID. Um, and I don't know how you feel about it. I certainly know that the UK response has been as complicated as the US response. Um, but we have seen everything from churches preaching there is no COVID to people, you know, saying, I don't care if I get COVID, I'm going to go to this party, I'm going to go to this festival anyway, and, you know, be around lots of people and to people locking themselves in their home for three years, right? We've seen everything. Um, people saying trust the science to people saying the science is, is evil and is going to, you know, infect you with, with, you know, some other disease or something, right? I mean, we've seen everything. Um, and so I think it's easier for us to understand and I understood it intellectually, but I understand it better emotionally now, how this kind of uncontrollable disease event um, moves through a, a human population and reveals, how, reveals the cracks and fissures and also resiliencies and strengths of that population. Um, and that's really how I look at the Black Death is it's, you know, as it goes from human to human, it's like, a, a, you know, connect the dots. Here's how society works and we can see it and we can think about it in that way. Uh, and I've, I've certainly, I certainly try to echo those thoughts that having lived through a pandemic, it's now easier to understand the reactions and the, the connections that, that were present within the Black Death or the, the second plague pandemic, yeah. as you call it. Um, so it's, it's... I'm, I'm really interested in how that, like, in 15 years, right, in an introductory college level or advanced uh, high school level class, I'm really interested in how the Black Death gets taught, um, both because the science and then the, the, the non-scientific scholarship is so different and so, I, mean, I, taught the, I taught something that wasn't true my entire career until Monica Green said, hey, we're, you all are a hundred years too late. Here's the, so we have to, you know, I, it wasn't that I, I was lying, I taught the best story I knew, but so that's gonna change on an academic level. But then, you know, all the people who are, are five now, who are 10 now, as they enter, Advanced. I mean, I just think it's going to be a very different experience. Yeah, no, I've certainly, I've certainly taken that from my own teaching experience, where teaching yeah, it to sure. teaching to students who have literally grown up within a pandemic, uh, yeah. their understanding of plagues and pandemics is is very different to what mine was when I was learning that same experience. Yeah, so for sure. I, I can I can see that there will probably be a few plague experts in the next twenty <laughs> to thirty years. Now, I know yeah, this yeah. is a difficult question to pinpoint, uh, but just for the benefit of our listeners, you know, when, when do you think the Bright Ages begin uh, and roughly, and I'm going to use the, word, the phrase roughly because it's hard to pinpoint yeah, yeah. anything. Yeah. So, so we actually, 
we, we begin in the, the 430s with the construction of this mausoleum, but in general, the life of Gallipo Stadium. Um, that's where we like to begin. Um, certainly, there are things that are changing in the fifth century that are worth noting. Um, and it's a reasonable point. You know, if you're going to have political eras, you're going to have to have a page one. You're going to have to put something on page one. But I would like to emphasize that it was arbitrary. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of other choices that could be made. With the end, again, there have been lots of different places. Um, so look, I tend to look at it kind of as a continuum that we get, first we get people like Petrarch who are saying, we're in a new period, guys, we're in the Renaissance now. So that, that marks a kind of intellectual shift, if not one that necessarily holds up to the evidence. There's definitely changes that happen economically in the 15th century, in part because of the, the plague pandemic, but also in part because of new, new technologies and global transportation. I definitely think the connections to the Atlantic world start to shift a lot of things. And the Reformation, the, the fall of Constantinople, um, which does end the Roman Empire, um, at least in that Roman Empire, although Roman empires continue in Europe and in, in Moscow. Um, but the, you know, the rise of the Ottoman Empire is a real, a real reshaping of things. Um, and the Reformation is a reshaping of things. It forces kind of inchoate divisions within Christianities to become more defined and then to get armies and then to go to war with each other. So that, that, that changes. So as we move into the, the 1400s and 1500s, we start to see some pretty big changes. But you know, the, the latest anecdote that we talk about in our book is in the 16th century, it's this debate in Valladolid, Spain, Valladolid, Spain, I think I said that right, um, between uh, a kind of a, a newfangled humanist thinker and a very medieval Dominican thinker. And the newfangled humanist thinker, the man of science, the man who, you know, sort of we, we might tout as the hallmark of modernity, which we would th say is a good thing. He's saying it's a debate about what to do with the indigenous populations of the Americas in Spain. And he's saying that, you know, erase them, wipe them out, convert, forcibly convert them. Their culture is no value. Um, you know, let's totally just, you know, it, let's totally, I mean, use them as slaves. They have, but they're not, they're not really humans at all. Um, and the medieval person is saying, not a, again, not in a 21st century abolitionist framework, right? He's not, he's not a good modern guy. I don't want to pretend that, but in this very medieval way of saying, you know, we have to understand these people as humans with souls and we need to engage them as humans and be, and be humane to them again in a, in a medieval way. Um, and so even in the 16th century moment, even in the expansion of, of, uh, you know, expansion of, of the European sphere of influence and power into the broader world and the, the rise of the age of colonialism, colonization and imperialism, we still see the continuum of the Middle Ages live on. And that's, that was that particular moment in your book, I think is, it's a great reflection of the different ideas that were present and the way ideas were moving. And that was a really nice explanation of where it begins and where it could possibly end as well to help our listeners. Thank kind of, you. Yeah, <laughs> but it's arbitrary. We're just making choices because we have to have a first page and we yeah. have to have a last page, right? It, we're just making choices, and and the choices have implications. And if people want to criticize for us for those choices, it's fair game. Come, you know, write it. Write a different story. I'm eager to read it. Yeah, and I. I, I mean, I really am. I'm eager yeah. to read it. I'm eager to read it. Well, I definitely yeah. encourage other people to go and write their own then. But firstly. <laughs> to read this one because this is really fantastic now final fun Thanks question so for you uh, as we do for all our guests here in the history of jackson podcast which three 
people, characters from your book would you like to have dinner with and why? Yeah, well, I don't know if they'd all get along, but um, the, the first one is, is um, Maimonides. I mean, I, I don't feel like I'm worthy. I mean, he's just, he's so important and he's important in my sort of personal family traditions as one of the great Jewish thinkers of all times. But there's something about his personality that comes through in some of the survivors. Like, I don't know. I would I would like to sit there and 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 feed him, like feed him a good dinner while he tells me things for several hours. Um, more entertaining is Marie de France. We didn't really talk about her, but we have a chapter on Marie de France and sort of court culture. Um, and in general, women as intellectual creators in the in the, the high middle ages. We talk about Hildegard von Bingen, and I'm sure Hildegard would be great. Um, but Marie de France, she just has this kind of joyous. Her writing is just, I, I, I would like to ask her, I have a lot of questions about the stories she's telling and who she's telling them for and the choices she makes. And, and there's fun things like werewolves and fairies and other things. It's a good, it's, it's good. Um, and then he, she doesn't actually, well, I don't know. It's a tough choice for the third one. I guess in terms of who I'd really, I mean, you know, sitting down for dinner sounds like we're friends and I don't know that I want to be friends with many of these people. But I have a lot of questions for, we don't talk about them in our book, but um, I have a lot of questions for Doge Enrico Dandolo. We've been talking about the fourth crusade. This guy in his nineties who leads a crusade. Um, I mean, I just, I just have, I just have a lot of questions and I'd like, I'd like some answers. So maybe it's a little less sitting down for dinner and more of a journalist doing an interview, but if I could get him on the record on a few issues, I'd really, I'd really like that. And to be 19 leading the crusade, I, I'd, I'd sure have a lot of questions for him as well. I mean, 90, <laughs> 90 and blind, right? But is, is there on the boats. I mean, he's not, you know, running up the walls, but he's there on the boats. Uh, I, anyway, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> and if our listeners would like to go away and read more about some of the topics within uh, the book, or more about some of the topics that we have spoken about today, what would you recommend that they go away and have a read of? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess what I'd like them to do is look at the further reading section um, in, in our book. But I, I will say that um, this is a pretty great moment for hopefully smart books written about the Middle Ages for a general audience. There's a lot of really, uh, really great stuff. I think um, Kat Jarman's new book, The River Kings on, on the Vikings, and thinking about the Vikings kind of relocating the center of I mean, again, England is important in the history of, of, um, of the Viking world, but it's, it's just one piece and it's not the biggest piece. And so, you know, England, I think it's sometimes because English people are writing English books, you know, or, or these Anglophones, if it's Americans, we get a little over-focused on, on the British part story of the Vikings and not the, the Ukrainian, I mean, or the, you know, the story of Kiev. And so I think the River Kings is great. Um, also the, the book that I just read, I even have it here somewhere. I'm gonna make sure I get it right. Uh, yeah, this 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 book, Fierce Appetites, by um, Elizabeth Boyle. Uh, she's uh, an expert in medieval Irish literature, and it's a memoir it's about the death of her father, about parenting. There's a lot of sex in it. There's also a lot of sex in her in in her sources, um, and I think it is just an enormously inviting way to um, to think about how many about the how medieval people talked about their world and, and the places in which they connect. And then finally. We have a further reading section in the bright pages for each chapter. We worked hard on it. Um, it is short. Each section is short. There are dozens more books we could have listed. But at each point, we tried to direct the reader towards things that are available in English that they could read about any of the topics we cover. And we really hope that when people read the bright ages, it's a first step, not a final word. And it's, it's a great further reading section. And 
I like your concept behind it. And I hope more books start to adopt a similar concept because it is, it's a great tool for students, but it's also a great tool for casual history readers who want to go out and find more on their topics. Now, finally, this is the thing historians <laughs> don't know is that people love history. People yeah. love reading history. We, we just have to give it to them. We have to give it to them in a way that, that, is inviting uh that's really it. sorry you were gonna no, you're no. gonna close with an eloquent comment but i i'm too excited about history well i was actually going to ask them to direct them towards your book uh which oh, is great. a great <laughs> piece you. of accessible history <laughs> <laughs> well if you just google the bright ages you will find it available in all reasonable online and in-person bookstores um i'm a big fan of local bookstores but buy it wherever you like um you can find more from me at davidmperry.com, and that's a great way to find out where I am and find my social media handles. I'm very active on Twitter um, and have email and things like that, and I'll hope to hear from some of your listeners. And I'll make sure all your social media links are in the description below and a link Thanks. to go and get The Bright Ages because it is truly a fantastic book. If you want to challenge the conceptions that you or misconceptions that you have to the medieval <laughs> period, it is a fantastic read, uh, and I breeze through it really quite quickly i couldn't put the book down so i really recommend people to go away and uh, grab themselves a copy well thank you very much for coming on david i really really appreciate Thanks. you coming Thanks, on Jackson. it was great yep and and for all our listeners if you enjoyed listening to me and david please make sure to leave a like and a review uh it really helps more people to learn more about history and if you really really want to maybe you can give it a share uh, so more people can get <laughs> more people can have a listen to David impart his masterful knowledge of the medieval period. Thank you guys. 